0: All right. Well, today. So last week, actually, let's 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 recap. Last week we talked about the existence of God, which is super important. In fact, one of my favorite things about God is He just happens to exist necessarily. And so we talked about that last week. Can you? uh, Are there proofs for the existence of God? We talked about if there are evidences for the existence of God. Why don't certain people believe in Him and these kind of things? And so it was kind of difficult, kind of philosophical. So today we're going to jump into something much easier called the Trinity. I'm kidding. The Trinity is very, very difficult. We're going to do that today, but it should be a lot of fun. So today, we're going to be talking about God being a Trinity and what does that mean. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Zach, didn't we talk a little bit about the Trinity in this theological equipping class a few semesters ago? The answer to that is yes. Yes. Why are we talking about the Trinity again today? Well, for the same reason that we talk about Jesus every single week in the sermon, all right? This is the God we serve. We can never learn too much about him. You can stop studying the Trinity when you finally figured it out. All right, which is never, okay? So that's why we're going over that today. We're gonna to talk about God being a trinity. When we first did this, we had to kind of rush through it because we were covering a lot of big topics, and so we had to cover everything about the trinity and everything about Christ and everything about heresies and these kind of things. We're gonna break it down and do it a little bit slower in here today. Today, what we're gonna talk about is what you should believe about the trinity. And then next week, Jeff will be here, and he's gonna to talk to you about what you should not believe about the trinity. So today, we're going to talk about how you should think of God and the right ways to think of God as Trinity. And then next week, Jeff is going to talk about some of the history here. He's going to talk about heresies to avoid. He's going to give bad illustrations of the Trinity, which, by the way, are all of them because there is nothing like God. And so that will be next week. So we're going to kind of do it in two parts. But today, we're going to start off by talking about what does it mean for God to be a Trinity. Now, let me tell you why this is so, 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 so important. God does not care if you just have a bunch of passion towards the wrong being, okay? Paul in the book of Romans rebukes them for some of the unbelieving Jews for having what he says, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. God doesn't care if you just have a bunch of gushy feelings, but they're directed towards the wrong object. The reason the Trinity is important is because this is the God who we serve, this is one of the central facets to Christianity. It's one of the things that makes Christianity unique. In fact, if you don't hold to the Trinity, you are not a denomination, you are a cult, all right? So when people show up on your doorstep and they look like they work, you know, at Best Buy with their little black ties or something like this, these are typically groups that would deny the Trinity and they are not Christian groups, okay? And so uh, the Trinity is super important for this reason because this is the God that we serve, all right? I was, uh, I saw a, uh, some advertising For a local mosque, which I thought was interesting. I haven't seen very much advertising for local mosques. They don't have a lot of commercials and things like this. But on this poster that I saw, I can't remember where I was at. I was at a store or a bus station or something. There was a woman who was a Muslim, and she was wearing traditional Muslim garb. And she had her hands raised in worship, and she was crying. And I thought, that is not true worship. She has a lot of feelings towards something that's not Jesus. She has a lot of this squishy feelings, but her object is incorrect. She's worshiping Allah. She is not worshiping Yahweh, who is Trinitarian. And so God is not concerned with us just loving the wrong being a whole lot. The example that's often given when we talk about the Trinity is, it does not matter if I just really, 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 really love my blonde-haired, blue-eyed wife, Katie. Katie. Because my wife has brunette hair, and she has green eyes. I have to love the right person, not just some woman a whole lot. I have to love the right woman. And so when we talk about the Trinity, the reason that it's important is because this is who God is. And to not think of him this way is to think of him as less than the Bible actually describes him. Everybody with me? Okay. Okay. There we go. Okay, good. Yeah. A lot, a lot of amens. A lot of uh, handkerchief wiping the forehead. I really want y'all to get into it today. I want it to be a lot of fun. We are commanded in the Bible. What is the greatest command, by the way? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the greatest command. Jesus says, quote, this is the greatest command. And so this has to do with that. That God, We worship Yahweh, and Yahweh happens to be a trinity. And Yahweh is his name. His name is not Allah. His name is not Ganesh. His name is not Zeus. His name is not any of these things. His name is Yahweh, and he happens to be a trinity. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna break this down and talk about this all this morning. So before we do, a few preliminary things. Number one, the word trinity does not occur anywhere in the Bible, In fact, none of our words occur anywhere in the Bible because the Bible's not written in English originally, all right? It's written in Hebrew and Greek, all right? So there are a lot of terms. The word incarnation doesn't occur in the Bible. But that doesn't matter. What we're looking for are concepts. We're looking for concepts. If I say I'm married to Katie, you can't say, well, she must not be your wife because you didn't use the word wife, By the fact that I'm married to her, that means by default that she's my wife. So whether or not the word is used is irrelevant because when it comes to the Trinity, we're going to say each of these concepts clearly taught. Number two, when we're talking about the Trinity, this is not something we are going to be able to fully understand. So let's just get that out up front. In the same way that we don't understand how God is infinity In the same way that we don't understand how God is truly sovereign, yet he judges us for what we do as we really are held accountable for our actions, there's a lot about God that's mysterious, and one of the things about him that's mysterious is his Trinitarian nature. There is nothing like God. When we get into the Trinity, the reason it's confusing is because we're trying to make it all make sense. We're trying to to probe the depths of an infinite being, and then we get upset when we come up short. Well, we're going to come up short, right? If you could understand everything about God, you would be him. So there's an element here to where all we're trying to do is simply see what the Bible says and say yes and amen to that, whether or not we can understand it fully is irrelevant, okay? You never understand really anything about God fully, all right? He's an infinite being. So keep that in mind. Uh, What some people will do is they will say that this is kind of a human invention that came up at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and people didn't really believe in the Trinity before that. And what they're doing is they're confusing people fleshing out what the Bible teaches, with the fact that the Bible teaches these three points clearly throughout the Bible, okay? So let's go over what these points are, and then we're gonna give you a ton of scripture. I just wanna overwhelm you with this. I want you to always be thinking in Trinitarian terms, all right, so number one, the Bible teaches there is only one God. Pop quiz for you, how many gods are there? Boom, Gabe, what is it? Nailed it, all right, A plus, okay, one God. There's only one God. Number two, The Bible teaches that God consists, or God is, three distinct persons. Okay, we're going to talk about what each of these mean. And then lastly, each person is truly and fully God. Each person is truly and fully God, okay? It's not as though Jesus is just a third of God. It's not as though Jesus is just like God's arm or something like this. He's God. Whatever it means to be God, that's what he is. And whatever it means for, to be God, that's uh, what the Spirit is. And so these three points are what the Bible does teach clearly. And I'm going to give you a lot of passages on this. If I'm talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity, I'm talking to somebody in a cult, or I'm talking to somebody like this, what they will say is, the Trinity's not taught in the Bible, mankind invented that later, that came later, et cetera, et cetera. And I will say to them, okay, then which of these three points did Christians not hold in the New Testament? Did they hold that there's only one God? Yeah, they did. Even though they only thought there was one God, did they somehow also worship Jesus? Yes, they did. And did they believe that Jesus and the Spirit are just like part of God or they're actually God? Well, they believe that they're actually God. And so what I'm trying to do is just because, don't, don't let terms mess you up, I guess is what I'm saying. Don't let words and wrangling and those kind of things mess you up. The Bible teaches these three things clearly. So I want to show you that. If you've got your handout, I've got about 1,000 verses here. Uh, There are more than this. I just had to give you some, okay? This is not an exhaustive list. The Bible's very clear on these three points, okay? So uh, let me give you a definition of the Trinity, and then we will go through each of these points. God eternally exists as one God, consisting of three persons who are each fully God, okay? God eternally exists. He's always been Trinity. God eternally exists as one God, consisting of three persons who are each fully fully God. Now let's go through each of these points, because here's all I want you to do. All I want you to realize is that when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, what we're doing is we're saying the Bible affirms these three things, and I don't know how they fit together, but yes and amen to all of them. That's all we're trying to do. In fact, being orthodox, holding correct Christian belief, leaves an element of mystery. Every time a group falls into heresy, it's because they're trying to figure out how it all works, and so they end up denying one of these three points. So let's start with the first one. The first one, there is only one God. Let me read you a bunch of verses just to make sure in case you didn't believe this coming in. In case you came in accidentally as a polytheist, we're gonna cut that down, all right, here we go. Deuteronomy 6, four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, all right? 1 Kings eight sixty: that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. In case you thought, well, yeah, he's God and he's Israel's God, but maybe there are other gods. No, the text says there are not. Deuteronomy four twenty five. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Okay. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So he's saying there's never been any other gods and there never will be any other gods. There's just Yahweh. There's just the one Trinitarian God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, all right? Isaiah 45, five, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 8, four, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that quote, there is no God but one. This is basic Jewish monotheism to the core, okay? One of the things that's so interesting in the New Testament, when you see the language used of the Spirit and you see the language used of Jesus, is it happens within a context of those that are thoroughgoing, strict, monotheistic Jews. Somehow Jews that become Christians in the first century know that there's only one God, but they're okay talking about the Spirit indwelling you, and they're okay worshiping Jesus. So somehow there's already this nascent Trinitarianism in them even before they've worked out all the details later on, okay? So, Pop quiz, does the Bible teach there is one and only one and not other gods? Yes, you guys, you're crushing it, all right? I'm taking grades, by the way. Jeff's sitting in the back with a little sheet, and he's just, he's looking for everybody's answer. so be careful how you answer. If you're, if you're a heretic, then we'll have to have a discussion with you. Number two, God consists of three distinct persons, okay? God consists of three distinct persons, Again, Jeff, next week we'll talk about certain heresies, certain false teachings people fall into, but today we're just affirming what we should affirm, okay, what we should affirm. So the second point here is God consists of three distinct persons. So imagine you're a Jew in the first century and you grew up with strict Jewish monotheism. You know that Yahweh is the only God. All the other gods are just demons. They're idols. They're something else, but they're not the one true God. And then all of a sudden, listen to the way that God is described as three distinct persons over and over and over in the Bible. Let me give you some passages. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here, somehow, though there's only one God... He is said to be three distinct persons, and each of these persons are fully God. You wouldn't say something like this. You wouldn't say, go and baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and Jeff Ashley or something like this, right? At least I hope not. At least I hope not, right? Because what you're seeing here is though there's only one God in Jewish thinking, somehow he's three distinct persons. Let's look at another one. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay. So though there's only one God, you have somehow the father saying something about the son the sun coming up out of the water, by the way, uh, there's a little plug for baptism by immersion. And, uh, and then the Holy Spirit is lighting on the sun, coming down in the form or looking like or appearance or whatever it is of a dove. So here, though, there's one God. We see all three persons at the same time. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, as God is described, he's constantly described in these three as three distinct persons. First Peter one two. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, there's the spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, there's the Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? So pop quiz number two, when the Bible talks about God, does it constantly refer to him as three distinct persons? Raise your hand if you think it's no. Okay, kidding, all right, just kidding. Just seeing if you're awake. Just seeing if if you're awake. We're not going to throw stones at anybody today. Now, so does the Bible teach there's only one God? Yes. Does the Bible teach that somehow God consists of three distinct persons? Yes. And then lastly, each person is truly and fully God. What we mean by that is whatever it means to be God, that is the case of the Son, and that is the case of the Spirit. Again, God is not divided up into parts. It's not as though uh, the Father's one-third of God, and the Son is one third of God, and the Spirit's one third of God. Jeff will talk about some of these heresies next week. The idea is whatever it means to be God, Jesus is that. Whatever it means to be God, the Spirit is that. All right? And so these three things are what the Bible teaches. We come to the Trinity not because we're trying to come up with some sort of man-made doctrine. It's because we see that the Bible clearly teaches these three points and we're simply trying to affirm what the Bible affirms. Okay? Our job is to affirm what the Bible teaches. Not whether or not we can truly figure it out. Because you can't fully figure it out. Augustine's famous saying that if you uh, try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But if you try to deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. Is true. All right? Is true. Let's go over each person now being fully God. I'm not going to give you a bunch of verses, by the way, to prove that the Father is God. Uh, That's pretty much undisputed. The only group I know that's ever denied that are Mormons who think that God is actually a human from another planet who used to not be God. Okay? That's... uh, That's like science fiction. That's weird. So that's the only group. But in church history, you you really don't have that much, all right? So almost no group denies the deity of the Father. I didn't give you passages on that just because the Bible just assumes it throughout a billion times. So let's look at some passages that teach that the Son is fully God, and let's look at some passages that teach that the Spirit is fully God as well. So let's look at these passages. Again, imagine you're a Jew in the first century your people had been exiled for idolatry. So you're very strict to make sure you only worship the one God. You don't do idols, you don't worship any other gods, you don't wanna go back into exile. You you grow up saying maybe every day the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These kind of things. So you're used to reciting as a mantra every day that there is only one God. Yahweh alone is the God of Israel. There are no other gods. And now look, with that in mind, now look how Jesus and the Spirit are described. Let's start with the Son Talking about Jesus, Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here this text says that the Lord that rules everything is none other than Jesus Yet he sits down at the Father's right hand. You see a Trinitarianism. Somehow Jesus is the one that's in control of everything, like only Yahweh is, yet he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So he's distinct from the Father. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, okay? I've heard people say that the New Testament doesn't explicitly call Jesus God. It does in like 15 places or something. It's all over the place, okay? Not to mention all the places where the Bible will ascribe attributes that only belong to God and apply them to Jesus, like when he forgives people of their sins and these kind of things. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You have Jesus explicitly being called God. John 1.1. In the beginning, by the way, in Jewish thinking, there's nothing else in the beginning other than God, right? In the beginning is when God creates things. So before that, you just have the Trinitarian God, which is why Jesus will say, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began, all right? So back before creation, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God. So notice that the Son is distinct from the Father, point number two. And the Word was God. Notice here that Jesus is being called God. Each person is truly and fully God. Colossians 2.9. This one's pretty clear. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay? John 20, 27 through 28. Then he said to Thomas, okay, everybody know Thomas? Everybody know Doubting Thomas? I really like Thomas because that's me. I'm like, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in your handholds and stick my hand in your side. I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus shows up. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Again, when in the Bible, okay, do you know how there are places in the Bible where angels will show up and people will bow down to worship the angel because they're scared? And they're like, oh my gosh, you're super bright and shiny and you have a sword. And they'll fall down on their face. What do the angels then tell the people to do? Don't do that. That's right. Stop what you're doing. This is how you get down there. Stop. D- don't do what you're doing. I'm just a servant like you. I'm just a creature like you. But when people bow down and worship Jesus or people bow down at his feet or people call him God or when he forgives people for their sins or when he reads people's thoughts, it's meant to be a clear reference to his deity, to his deity, okay? Colossians 1:16 through 17. Listen to this. This is talking about Jesus, Okay? For by him all things were created. So according to the Bible, who created everything? Yes, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In creation, think back in creation. The Father is going to create, and how does he create? Through his word. And who is hovering over the earth, bringing form and life where there is only chaos? The Spirit. You even see in creation a Trinitarian act of creation where the Father, it's almost as if the Father were to say words and breathe out that he's in a sense breathing out and saying the Son when he says his word and the Spirit as he breathes, if you want to think of it that way. Okay, So uh, you see the Trinity here. So this says, For by him all things were created, meaning Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. That's a reference to his eternality. And in him all things hold together these passages I don't think could be more clear. I don't think these passages, and these are just some of them. This isn't even mentioning all the other places where Jesus is talked about as being God or doing something that only God can do or commanding the storm, the winds and the waves obey him. That's meant to be a reference to Yahweh, who alone is said in the Old Testament to be able to tell the waves, you can go this far and no further, etc. Here are just some examples. So does the Bible teach that Jesus is truly and fully God? Absolutely, absolutely. If not, you should not be a Christian. If you're worshiping just some really powerful created being, who cares? Give your glory to something else, all right? Our, our faith does stand or fall on the Trinity. Now, let's talk about the Holy Spirit, okay? Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. You're going to see that the Holy Spirit is also said to be truly and fully God. He's going to do things that only God can do. He's going to explicitly be equated with God. Let me give you some examples. Acts 5, 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? To God. Or to whom? To God. So here's the story of uh, these uh, people, Ananias and Sapphira, this uh, kind of, uh, some, some kind of this uh, infamous couple in the book of Acts and they sell some land and uh, it's their money, all right? This is not a, pa- I've heard s- pastors and stuff use this as like a sermon on tithing or something. The issue is not whether or not they're giving enough or not giving enough. It's that they're lying, okay? They sell this field and they bring the money and give it to the apostles and the apostles say, is this the total amount that you sold the uh, field for? And they do something like, yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. this is what we, uh, we sold the field for and God kills them, okay? And it says here in this text, that they lied to the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, they have lied to God, okay? You see this uh, equating the Holy Spirit with God. Psalm 139.7, this is something that only God, only God is everywhere, by the way. Only God has omnipresence. He's not a spatial being. He's everywhere with his whole being at once, and it says this about the Spirit, Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I free, Free. sorry, that's, that's the just few hours of sleep that I have. Again, I have a little girl, I come back to work technically tomorrow, I just love you guys and I love theology, so here I am rambling over my words. Tim made fun of me last week, he's like, you started off by slurring your words, what is wrong with you? So, let me try this again. God's word does not have slurring Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee, nailed it, from your presence? Okay, the idea is, since God is everywhere, the spirit's everywhere. You can't get away from God. Where are you going to run from God? You can only run to him, all right? If I go down to the depths, you are there. If I ascend into the heights, you are there. David will say that you cannot get away from the presence of God. And here, it is uh, the text is saying that you cannot get away from God's spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17, look at this one. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay? 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12 says this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Nothing can search the depths of God other than God. Okay? the Spirit being called God or equated with God or doing something only God can do. So, with all that in mind, let's just recap it again. If someone wants you to describe the Trinity to them, what we're trying to do is simply say, we believe the Bible teaches the following three things and that accurately describes who God is and we don't know how it works, but we're not gonna deny it, okay? So, number one, how many gods are there? You guys, nailed it. Gabe, again, good job. Another A plus, nailed it twice. How many persons does God consist of? He consists of three distinct persons, okay? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit, okay? They are distinct persons. Notice that when Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, he doesn't say, I'm so proud of me being my son, father, and for this, he doesn't do that. There's three distinct persons. Jesus on the cross doesn't say, me, me, why have you forsaken me? There's a distinction between the members of the Trinity, okay? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't pray, not my will be done, but mine, Right. There's a distinction, okay? We'll talk about, Jeff will talk about that some next week with a certain heresy that has a tendency sometimes to deny those distinctions. And then last one, each person, whatever it means to be God, that's true of that person. In relation to the Father, Jesus is Son. In relation to God, Jesus is Him, all right? That's the idea. So God consists of three distinct persons, and each person is truly and fully God. Okay, everybody take a big breath. (sighs) Relax, it's a lot of information. Now let's talk about some helpful analogies of the Trinity that are still awful and never work, okay? So I'm going to do this. Here's what we're going to do. There are no analogies of the Trinity that work. Why? Who can tell me why? Yes, because there's nothing like God, okay? There's no other examples of other things that are infinitely loving. I mean, only God. God is unique. There is nothing that is like God. He'll say that a lot. Not only will he say, there are no other gods beside me, but he'll say, there is none like me okay? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So there are no good illustrations of the Trinity. Next week, Jeff is going to go over some bad illustrations of the Trinity, and it will be hilarious. So come back for that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some analogies, some helpful illustrations maybe about the Trinity. Some of these are still imperfect, okay? But they're not terrible, That's all I'm trying to say. They're not good. If you walk out of here and you say, yeah, Zach thinks you can use analogies to uh, talk about the Trinity, no, I will hunt you down. I do not think you can do that, okay? But I want to give you some things to just help you in your thinking. The first is not an analogy. It's simply a way to affirm what we've just affirmed. So I'm gonna show you this. Oh, man, already messed up. It's the sleep deprivation. Here we go. God, is, 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 is not, uh, let's do this, is not, is not. Okay, this is the first illustration. This is not an illustration of the Trinity. This is just me drawing out the things I've just said. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. You with me? You can look at this online. They'll actually draw triangles. This just looks like a bunch of random words. It looks like I threw alphabet soup against the wall. I'm sorry for that, okay? But just know what I'm trying to say is around this perimeter, it says the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, yet each member of the Trinity, it would be helpful if I did something like this. Yes, God nailed it. And then, you know, if I did something like this, this would be helpful, too. Uh. See how clear the Trinity is? You see how clear? Do you you understand what I'm saying? Forget that I ever wrote this. Just get, this is a bad one. Just get, this is a, it's a great illustration to look at visually, but uh, I apparently just can't draw it. And you know whose fault it is? It's Isla's fault, my daughter. Because she's, she's a week and a half old, and I am like crazy exhausted. Like if I say something mean to you later, I love you. I'm just not here. This isn't me. I'm outside my body watching me teach this lesson, okay? I'm exhausted. The point of that one, though, that I was trying to show is simply this, that what it says is that the Father is God. That's true. The Son is God. That's true. The Spirit is God. That's true. But each of the members of the Trinity are not each other. There is distinction among the members of the Trinity, Okay. Here's another one that's, why, am I, why are we even doing these if they're imperfect? Just to try to jog your brain, okay? Here's another one. Let's do another one that is an okay but, again, wrong illustration of the Trinity. Imagine, by the way, and you're going to have to be gracious on my drawing here. Imagine that this green marker is like the Father. We're going to draw a big circle, okay? So that's going to represent the Father. It's not the Father. He's not a circle, but it's going to represent the Father. This blue marker is going to represent the Son. Now, check this out. Wait for it. Oh, man, this is going to get really bad. Oh, gosh. Here it is. It's, it's, oh, man. This is going to be real weird for the auto-recording, just hearing me make grunts and stuff. Okay? There is the sun. And then lastly, this red marker will represent the spirit. Okay? And the point being is that you only have... How, the idea is that you ultimately here have one circle... You have three distinct circles, and each circle is fully a circle. That's kind of the idea. Now, here's the problem with this. This is just a blurry, brownish-looking circle now, all right? This is where the analogy breaks down. There is nothing like the Trinity. This is why this is just an okay analogy. It's not great, because when I drew that red line, that wasn't the whole circle. That was just a red circle. And when I draw the blue line, it was just a blue circle. The point of this illustration is to say there's only one circle And there are three distinct persons, three distinct colors, and each color is fully the circle. That's the idea. But it is imperfect. Because again, nothing is like God. I can't draw a picture of God, much less his Trinitarian nature. I'm just trying to get you to get these three concepts. Make sense? Let me give you another illustration that kind of works better than the ones Jeff's going to tell you not to believe in next week, but still isn't a great illustration. Let me give you this one. I made this one up, and so if you uh, use this, make sure to put me in a footnote. I'm going to give you a math problem, okay? And then I'm going to talk about why I think it's good and why I think it breaks down. Here we go. One times one equals one. Okay. Let's do a little math. By the way, if you can multiply by one, you're gonna crush this. So if you're already scared and you're like, oh man, I don't remember math, you've drawn some little tiny numbers up above the bigger numbers, what does that mean? We'll talk about this, okay? This is an illustration, again, that's supposed to be kind of helpful about the Trinity, but it is imperfect, why? Nothing is like God. That's one of the great things about him. He's mysterious, he's beyond us, he's awesome, all right? We're supposed to, when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, we're supposed to fall on our face and confess that God is better than us. That's what we're supposed to do. This doctrine should incite worship in its mystery. Here's what this illustration tries to say. One times one times one equals one. You have three distinct ones, and it only equals one God. That's the idea. Now, what makes these ones distinct? Well, I've put the one to the different power to show that there is some sort of distinction among the members of the Trinity. One to the tooth to the second power, all right, one to the tooth power, let's call it that, is only one. One. All right? One to the three, one to the third, Carl's loving that. Uh, one to the third power is only one. One to the fourth power just means one times one times one times one. That just equals one. So this illustration's pretty good because it says there's only one God. There are three distinct persons. That's why they're marked by this number as a distinction. Yet each one is fully one. It's pretty good. It's pretty helpful. Here's where I think this analogy breaks down and why it's not a perfect illustration of the Trinity. I don't think there's any real distinction between these. One to the second power is one. And one to the third power is one. So I don't think that this actually shows a distinction among the members of the Trinity. I think the problem with this illustration is it denies that second point. It denies that God consists of three distinct persons. Okay, three distinct persons. Are those fun at least? Do they get your mind jogging? Okay, none of them are right. Come back next week. I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot of fun because it's always more fun to make fun of what other people believe wrongly than to talk about what you believe rightly, okay? That's always more fun. So come back next week for that. So let's have some clarifications about the Trinity, all right? Let's have some clarifications about the Trinity. Number one, you cannot fully understand what I just said. I don't fully understand what I just said, okay? I believe that the Bible teaches there's only one God. We just looked at a bunch of passages, I believe that the Bible teaches God is somehow three distinct persons. We just looked at a bunch of passages. I believe that Jesus and the Spirit are truly and fully God. I believe the Father is truly and fully God. But I don't understand it. I understand these three points, and I affirm all of them, and I believe that's actually who God is. But when I go back and I try to put all the pieces together, I get confused. If God's three distinct persons, then how is each person fully and truly God? Would that not blur the distinction? If there's only one God and he is only, he's a unity, then how can there be distinctions among the members? And this is where we marvel and we say, who are we to deny something the Bible clearly teaches just because we don't understand it? That's always the issue. The all heresies, when it comes to the Trinity, come from an act of impiety. They come from a place where there's a lack of reverence. They come from a place of saying, I know the Bible says that, but that doesn't make sense to me, so I'm now going to deny something the Bible says. You can't do that. You can be confused, but you're not allowed to deny, okay? Not allowed to deny. Uh, by the way, let me just tell you a little story. This was interesting in my life. Loving and knowing God is a trinity. You learn the language in classes like this. You, you see the verses in classes like this, but when you become a Christian, there's something about this doctrine that screams to your heart that it's true. All of a sudden, you become a Christian And you only believe there's one God. You're not a polytheist, but you also believe Jesus is God, and you should worship him. And you also believe the Spirit's God, and you worship him. That's just innate. Right after I became a Christian, I didn't know Trinitarian theology to a strong depth. I was on the phone with my buddy, and I was just talking to him. This is back when we had corded phones. I know, it's weird. And I said, hey, man, I got to go. I got to go worship Jesus. And the words came out of my mouth, and I thought, wait a second. I only believe there's one God, but I I am going to go worship Jesus too. Well, there you go, and I just went with it. There was just something, by, because I had become a Christian, the Spirit testified to me that, yes, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Father is God, but there's only one God. Yes, there's just something innate in us about that. The Trinity causes our hearts to rejoice. The first point, though, is you cannot fully understand this. Your goal is not to understand it, but to believe it. Number two, number two. Oh, gosh. Number two. How is the doctrine of the Trinity not a contradiction, okay? What some people will say is that the doctrine of the Trinity cannot be true logically because it is a contradiction. When we talked about logical fallacies, who remembers what an actual contradiction is? Julian, go for it. That's great. That's exactly right, and I'm glad that you used 25. You didn't say Zach is, you know, 94 or something like that. So, uh, okay, yes, absolutely. A contradiction is something that must be false, okay? If I say this is a whiteboard and this is not a whiteboard at the same time and mean the exact same thing, that's a contradiction. That can't, they can't both be true. If this is a whiteboard, it can't also be not whiteboard, okay? That's a contradiction. A and not A. Okay? So a contradiction with the Trinity would be something like this. There is only one God, and there is not only one God. That would be a logical contradiction. We don't say that. Or God is one God, and God is three gods. That would be a logical contradiction. They can't both be true at the same time. A logical contradiction is where something both can't be true at the same time. What we say, though, is that there is one God... That marker color by the way is from that uh, that blue circle thing I did. I'm being judged for my bad illustration of the Trinity. There's one God, three persons. That is not a contradiction. If we said there's one God and there's not one God, or we said there are three persons, there's not three persons, that would be a contradiction. That would be logically false. But that's not what we're affirming when we talk about the Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity, we're saying there is one God and there are three persons, and as long as we mean different things by the word God and by the word persons, we're not in a logical contradiction. Technically, we don't even need to know what we mean. We do to some extent, but we don't even need to know what we just to show that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a logical contradiction. To say there's one God and there's not one God would be. But to say there's one God and there are three persons is not a contradiction because what we mean by God and what we mean by persons are different, okay? Does that make sense to everybody? I just use this. In case you're talking to somebody who's not a believer and they say the doctrine of the Trinity is illogical or it doesn't make sense or something like that, you'll say, It's mysterious, but it's not illogical. It's not a logical contradiction. Logical contradictions have to be false, okay? Even we as Christians don't hold logical contradictions, okay? One God and three persons. So it's not a contradiction because we mean different things by the word God than we do by the word person. Historically speaking, let's do some Latin and Greek words so you can impress your friends, okay? Historically speaking, the church has said of God, Let's talk about his oneness, than his threeness. Historically speaking, the church has rightly said that God has one being, or they've used the term one essence. Sometimes they've said one substance and one will. Let me give you the words. I'm gonna write this one in Latin. Substantia, that's one substance, okay? That's one substance. What is a substance in uh, in early church thinking? When we think of substances, what do we think of? We think of stuff, right? Like water might be a substance or carbon or something might be a substance. That's not typically what the early church means when they use the term substance. They're using the term substance the way Aristotle does. A substance is the most basic thing. So a human is a substance to Aristotle. Okay, a horse is a substance to Aristotle, okay? It's not the carbon or the atoms or whatever's behind them, it's the thing itself. And so when the early church says that God is one substance, that's why they can also say that there's only one God. How many gods are there? How many substances of God are there? There's just one, okay? So the Latin term used here is substance, substantia. The Greek term is ousia. Usia, okay? Usia means being in Greek, okay? So God is one God, Okay, let me do it this way in case you're getting confused. How many gods are there? One. That's all we're saying. By the Latin phrase substantia, we mean God is one, one substance, one essence. And by the word "ousia" in Greek, these, these terms get used interchangeably, whether someone's writing in Latin or in Greek, this means God is one being. The whole point is to say, when we say that God is one, what do we mean that he's one? We mean he's one in substance, that he's one being, he's one God, Okay. Jeff will talk about this more next week, but when Jesus is described in the early church, he's called Homoousia, which means the same substance as the Father, meaning he's truly God. He's Homo, which means the same substance, same being, okay? Okay, so historically speaking, when we talk about God's oneness, what we're saying is there's one God. So it is right to say the following things there's one God, God has one being, God is one substance, God is one sub- essence. God has one will. That's all right to say uh, historically. Now, let's talk about God's threeness. What terms are used for that? Historically speaking, it is right to say that God is three persons. Here are the Latin and Greek phrases used for each of those. Persone. And then. Okay. The Latin phrase is persone. That sounds like our word person. That's pretty easy to remember. Okay. Most, more English words are taken from Latin than from Greek. So when you think, what does substantia mean? Sounds like substance, okay? What does "persona" mean? It means person, okay? So the church would say, though there's only one God, one being, one substance, one essence, when it comes to his persons, he is three personae. all right? He's three persons. The Greek word for person is "hypostasis." okay? Hupostasis. Again, these terms are used interchangeably. You don't have to remember this. This is just extra. This is just for fun. This is just so you know you're sitting over coffee and you're like, well, you know what? I think there are three personae in the, the one substantia of God, which is also usia, something like that, and then your friend will punch you for being pretentious. Okay, that's why. That's why we're doing this. So let me just go over those again. You don't have to remember these words. I just want to give them to you always for the sake of completeness. Historically speaking, it is right to say that God has one being, one essence, one substance, and one will. And historically speaking, it is right to say that God consists of three persons, Personae or hypostasis. okay? Now, next, okay, so we've gone through a few points. Let's go through some further clarifications about the Trinity. Each member of the Godhead shares all the attributes of deity. Each member of the Godhead, each member of the Trinity, shares all the attributes of deity, okay? What attribute does the Father have that the Son doesn't have? What attribute does the Son have that the Spirit doesn't have? All the members of the Trinity share the same attributes of deity, okay? The Father's all-powerful. Guess who also is all-powerful? The Son. Guess who also is all-powerful? The Spirit. The Father is all-knowing. Guess who also is all-knowing? The Son. Guess who also is all-knowing? The Spirit, okay? The Father is fully good. The Son is fully good. The Spirit is fully good. Whatever attributes of deity that God has, each member of the Trinity has. With that in mind, what then makes the members of the Trinity distinct? So think about it for a second. Think about what I just said. The Trinity is three distinct persons, but each person has all the attributes of God that each of the other persons have. So what makes them different? What makes them distinct? Do what? It's good. Okay, so so what makes them distinct is simply this: that the Father is the Father and not the Son and not the Spirit. Okay? That the Son is the Son and not the Father, and not the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit, and not the Father, and not the Son. What makes them distinct is not their attributes. They have the same attributes. What makes them distinct is, I'm going to give you a fancy theology term, what's called their taxes. Their taxes, or sometimes it's called modes of subsistence. Here's what that means. What makes the Son the Son is that he is eternally begotten from the Father. That doesn't mean, begot- don't think begotten-like the way we think of begotten-like came into being. He's always existed. What the early church says is there has to be something that distinctly makes the son the son. What is that? His sonness. That the father eternally communicates his essence to the son. Okay? And they would say that the spirit eternally proceeds. Eternal spiration is the term that's used. So you have father, son, and spirit. There's only one God. They all share the same attributes. What makes them different? Well, the son is eternally begotten and the Spirit eternally proceeds. All that the early church is trying to do is to say there has to be something that actually makes them distinct if we want to say there are three distinct persons. What is that? Well, it's that the Son is uniquely the Son. He's eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is uniquely the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. If that confuses you, you just have to remember this, that what makes the Son and Spirit different from the Father is that one is the Son and one is the Spirit. There's kind of a mystery there, okay? There's kind of a mystery there. Number seven, sometimes the Bible uses the word gods, lowercase g, to refer to angels. This does not mean the same thing as the one creator God, capital G. Sometimes the Bible refer, refers to rulers as gods, and that just means that they rule. Okay, that's just a reference there. Here, here's why I'm saying that. When I said that there is only one God, and we looked at a bunch of passages, You can find other passages, for example, in the Psalms that will say that God sits among the gods or something like that. What does that mean? Well, there, they're equivocating. They're using the term gods as a reference to heavenly beings. That's different, though, than the one true creator God, okay? There's only one eternal, true, Trinitarian creator God, Yahweh. And sometimes the term gods, though, in the Bible is applied to angels Uh, because they're spiritual beings. That's what it means by calling them gods. Not that they are actual gods. It means spiritual beings. Sometimes human rulers are called gods, not because they're actually gods, but because they rule, and that's something God does. That's the idea. Okay, so when the Mormons come to your door and they say, look, there are more than one God, you have to say, do you know what an equivocation is? Do you know when one word is used one way and it's used a different way in another context? That's where you're getting hung up, okay? That's where you're getting hung up. Psalm 82.1, God has taken his place in the divine council and amidst the gods he holds judgment. That just means angels. Again, there are no other true gods other than Yahweh. Psalm 138.1, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, the gods, I sing your praise. Okay? Psalm 82.6-7, I said, you are God, son of the most high, and all of you nevertheless will die like, um, I'm sorry, nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Here, we don't need to freak out. The Bible's not saying there are actual other gods. It's using the term gods within a certain context to mean something differently than it does when it talks about Yahweh. Okay, It's just meaning angels or human rulers. That's all it means. That doesn't mean they're actually gods. So don't get confused. The Bible is free to use language however it wants. Number eight. Sometimes Jesus says things that seem odd, like not knowing when he will return. You remember when he says this? He says that, that, he doesn't, that not even the angels in heaven know and that he doesn't know. However, This does not deny his deity, but is probably just meant to be understood in his ministry. Okay? Probably meant to be understood in his ministry. Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, that is not Jesus denying his deity. He's not addressing that question. He's not trying to say, I bet one day I need to answer this question in the Bible so that a theology class in McKinney, Texas can best understand what this is saying. That's not the point. His point is trying to say, stop trying to guess. Stop trying to guess. Stop putting up billboards on the sign. Stop writing about Bible codes. Stop it. Just stop it, okay? Now, with that in mind, let's spend a few minutes talking about some application of the Trinity. So let's review real quick. True or false, there is only one God. True. True or false, sometimes the word gods is used plural, but that just refers to angels or people. It doesn't mean they're actually gods. True. Uh, True or false, God consists of three distinct persons, True or false, each person is truly and fully God? True. Uh, God is one when we talk about him being God, essence, being, any of these kind of fancy terms. True or false? True. When we say that God is three, it's in, distinction, it's, in, it's in reference to his persons. True or false? Okay, you guys, crush it. Now, let me give you some application. So there's a tendency when you hear a lesson like this to think okay, that was a lot of technical stuff about the Trinity and, you know, how much do you really have to know to be saved and it seems like you used some weird words and you slurred your words because you were tired so I don't really understand and there's a lot that can happen. So let me give you some practical application about the Trinity. A lot of times people don't talk about this. Let me give you some practical applications about knowing the doctrine of the Trinity. So what is the so what of the Trinity? What is the so what of the Trinity? Let me give you a few of these. Number one, the most important and biggest so what of the Trinity is that we need to know the God of the Bible. We need to know the God of the Bible. We don't want to have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. The reason that the Trinity is applicable is because without this doctrine, you are not worshiping God rightly. You're not knowing God rightly. Okay? We can never know him fully, but we can know him truly. And so the most practical part of this is that it helps us know the God of the Bible better. Number two, another practical application is the Trinity and the work of the Trinity is necessary for our salvation. Everything that God does... He does with the Trinity. So in saving mankind, that is a work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father elects. The Father plans. The Father sends the Son. The Son lives a perfect life, dies on a cross for our sins, is resurrected. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who convicts us. He's the one that changes our lives. He's the one who inhabits us, who rebirths us, who regenerates us, who changes us, who helps us walk out this faith that we've been given. We're already justified, and it's the Spirit who works those good things in us. Growing in the Christian life, by the way, is not about trying harder and following, like, five life principles. It's about yielding yourself to the Spirit, okay? So the Trinity is necessary for our salvation, that in what God does, He does as a Trinity. When He creates, there's the Father creating. He creates through His Word, the Son, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters to bring order. The Father, Son, and Spirit is creating, when, uh, when God saves, the Father sends the Son, the Son dies on the cross, the Spirit applies that salvation to us. All the members of the Trinity are needed. Number three, the Trinity is an example for marriage. Okay, the Trinity is an example for marriage. When mankind, uh, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they're in a small way, not a perfect way because nothing's like God, but in a small way representing the Trinity. They become like a little binity, a little twinity, a little trinity of two, where the two become one flesh, okay, where the two become one flesh, and there's mutual honor and mutual edification and these kind of things amongst the uh, two people in the marriage. Number three, the Trinity shows why God can be loving. The Trinity shows why God can be loving. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Maybe you uh, grew up and maybe your grandma said something like, the reason God created us is because he was lonely and he didn't want heaven without us and these kind of things. God is not lonely. God does not need humans for anything. God is not up in heaven having a tea party with his bears and crying because he doesn't have any friends. There's always been love and fellowship within the members of the Trinity. For all eternity, there has been Father and Son and Spirit loving each other, honoring each other for all eternity. God doesn't need us for anything. God being a Trinity is one of the reasons why he can be loving. Because when you love somebody, you have something that you love. God is able to do that with himself amongst the members of the Trinity. When you deny the Trinity, you get Allah. You get a Unitarian God who is very harsh and very strict and very judgmental, but not very loving, but not very loving, okay? Number five, the Trinity shows why we need to have unity and diversity in the church, okay? The church is meant to be a microcosm uh, of the joy found within the Trinity. So though there's only one church, the church of Jesus Christ, though there's only one church, there are people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The church is made up of men and women. It's made up of black and white. It's made up of uh, Asian and Hispanic and all kinds of things. It's made up of rich and poor. It's made up of educated and uneducated. There's something about the church that screams to the glory of God's Trinitarian nature because it's the only institution on earth that can really, truly take people that are really are diverse and bring them around a central unity, which is worshiping God which is worshiping God, okay? And then lastly, lastly, the Trinity shows us that God is mysterious. Most of our wrong thinking about God has to do with us thinking of him as like this just super big human, like just a really big old man in the sky. God is not like that. God is mysterious. He is so far beyond us. It's not just that God is like a little bit smarter than us. He's infinitely smarter than us, infinitely. So that's a lot. If I count to 1,000, I'm no closer to infinity than when I began. There's a mystery with the Trinity of God that we have eventually come to the place where we have to have humility. We don't do what Adam and Eve do, and they say, you know what, I'm gonna take things into my own hands, and I'm gonna be like God. What we do is we bow our knees, and we say, you are great. I don't understand everything about you, but I believe it, I affirm it, yes and amen, and it produces worship. There's something about when we're worshiping And Tim tries to intentionally make sure that a lot of our songs are Trinitarian. They're all Trinitarian, but sometimes more explicitly so. There's something about our hearts when we hear, we praise you, Father, for your love. We praise you, Son, for dying for our sins. We praise you, Spirit, for guiding us, whatever it is that causes our hearts to rejoice. So we need to know that God is mysterious. You can't put him under your thumb. You can't figure him all out. There's an element to where you just have to say, my thoughts can go this far and no further. You're greater than me. And it brings humility. It's a reminder that we're made of dirt. We're just people. We're not God. Only God is God.